Well, we're in Matthew chapter 12, and I want to begin today by just reading uh, our text for this morning like we often do. And what we're going to see as we kind of enter into Matthew chapter 12 is we're going to see the increasing hostility against Jesus, and particularly in this chapter, the focus is on the hostility that comes to him from the religious leaders. And so today we're going to look at Matthew 12. Verses 1 to 8, really an amazing passage, as we'll see. It says, At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath, and his disciples were hungry, and they began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. He said to them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry? And those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which it was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests. Or have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. And if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. That's our text for this morning. And and as I said, this chapter is going to show us the increasing hostility towards Jesus. We've already seen that the cities where he did most of his miracles, where, where he did most of his mighty works, they didn't repent. And so in 11 verse 20, he began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. And in Matthew 11 and verse 16, Jesus asked, but to what shall I compare this generation? And he compared the generation that was alive during his ministry to a a generation of discontent children who, who complained about their playmates. Jesus wasn't meeting his generation's expectations. They rejected John. They rejected Jesus. But now the focus changes from the people in general to the scribes and the Pharisees. And chapter 12 is going to show us the response of the religious leaders of Israel. Now we've already seen just a hint of their animosity in chapter 9 and verse 32. And you could kind of turn back there. As they were going away, behold, a demon-possessed man who was mute was brought to him, brought to Jesus. And when the demon had been cast out, the mute man spoke, and the crowds marveled, saying, Never was anything like this seen in Israel. But the Pharisees said, He casts out demons by the prince of demons. And so we see this increasing hostility against Jesus. And it begins with, differing views on what can be done on the Sabbath. And so this week and next week, we're going to kind of see two different views of, of, of what can be done in the Sabbath, two kind of hostilities against Jesus surrounding the, the, this question, what, can, what constitutes work on the Sabbath? Now, I want to set the scene for our message just by kind of covering verses 1 and 2 really in in what I guess we'd call the introduction. Verses 1 and 2 set the scene for everything that Jesus is going to say in verses 3 to 8. 
And so it begins there. It says, at that time. And so the, it, this is sometime connected, kind of loosely connected with what we saw in chapter 11. And Jesus went through the grain fields, and he was with his disciples, and it was a Sabbath day. It was Saturday. And the grain fields would have kind of surrounded the towns and villages in Galilee. And there were small footpaths through these fields, kind of connecting the various homes and cities and kind of everything in between. And so there would have been little trails through these fields. And as you walked on what really would kind of like amount to a trail in our day, in most cases, there'd be these kind of trails through the fields. And as you walked, you'd be able to kind of stick your hand out probably on both sides and just run your hands through the the wheat that was growing. And it would have been likely at this time that it was either wheat or oats that were growing in these fields. And the disciples of Jesus on the Sabbath stroll, and, and that's what they were on here, was just a, a, a Sabbath stroll. They, they weren't going beyond the prescribed limits of the distance. The Pharisees were there as well, and so we kind of know that they wouldn't have went more than, I think it was about half a mile, 3,000 feet. And so this is kind of a Sabbath stroll situation, maybe after um, Sabbath school that day. And they began to pluck the heads of grain and to eat a little bit from those heads. They just kind of walked along and, and here and there they would, they would pluck a, a head of grain and, uh, and eat it. Now the problem wasn't at all that they did this thing. In fact, even Deuteronomy 23 made provision for this very thing. And so I'll just read you Deuteronomy 23, 24 and 25. It says, if you go into your neighbor's vineyard, you may eat your fill of grapes, as many as you wish but you shall not put any in your bag. And then verse 25 says, if you go into your neighbor's standing grain, you may pluck the ears with your hand, but you shall not put a sickle to your neighbor's standing grain. And Leviticus 19 even said that those edges of the field should be left for the poor or for the traveler to glean. And so even if it was harvested, they would have left those edges for the, the, the casual stroller by to kind of grab a, a head or two and eat it while they walked. Leviticus 19, 9 and 10 says this, When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge. Neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. And you shall not strip your vineyard bare, neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. And so the complaint is not the plucking or the eating. Really, the complaint here is that this was done on the Sabbath day. The Sabbath was a day of rest established by God, even from creation. And so Genesis chapter 2 says, Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. And so God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. And so the seventh day, the Sabbath day, was a holy day to the Lord. And on that day, God rested from his work of creation. He created six days. He created Sunday to Friday, and he rested on Saturday. And that Hebrew verb to rest has the same root as the noun, which is translated Sabbath, which is the day of rest. And so this was a day of rest for God and then for Israel, his nation. And this Sabbath day of rest was 
codified in Israel's law. The Sabbath was the primary thing that distinguished Israel from the surrounding nations. All the other nations would work seven days a week, but Israel was different. They would rest on this Sabbath day. And so the Ten Commandments included this command from Exodus 20 and verse 8, where God says, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but on the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy." This command was repeated in the second giving of the law in Deuteronomy chapter 5, where it says, Observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy as the Lord your God commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but on the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your ox or your donkey or any of your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates that your male servant and your female servant may rest as well as you. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. And so the command of the Sabbath was really quite simple. It was just simply, don't work. Don't work on that day. But then the question came, well, what is work? What does it mean to work or what does it mean to not work? And eventually, both before and after Jesus, the rabbis answered this question and they began to define what it meant to work. And they came up with 39 kinds of work which were forbidden. And then in those 39, they went into great detail about what could and could not be done on the Sabbath day. They had rules for how far you could walk on the Sabbath, about 3,000 feet or maybe half a mile, but no more. And that was from your house. They had rules of what you could carry. You could carry one fig or the weight of one fig, but, but no more on the Sabbath. You could do no food preparation on that day. You couldn't have enough ink in your pen to write two letters, not to not to write like two letters to a friend, but to draw like two actual characters of the letters, A, B. Uh, MacArthur said this, he said, among the many other forbidden Sabbath activities were sowing, plowing, reaping, grinding, baking, threshing, binding sheaves, winnowing, sifting, dyeing, shearing, spinning, kneading, separating or weaving two threads, tying or untying a knot, and sewing two stitches. So you couldn't even untie a knot. In fact, I remember reading something that if you, if you had two sandal straps, that was too much. So you could wear sandals with one strap on the Sabbath, but you couldn't wear your sandals with the two straps because everyone knows how much work it is to put on two straps on your sandals. So the Jews took the Sabbath, though. They, they took it very, very seriously. It's, it's almost impossible for us to kind of enter into how seriously they took the Sabbath. In fact, the law even said that the the penalty for breaking the Sabbath was death. 
And so Exodus 31.15 says, Six days work shall be done, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on the Sabbath day shall be put to death. Therefore, the people of Israel shall keep the Sabbath, observing the Sabbath throughout their generations as a covenant forever. Now, remember, this is a commandment given to the nation of Israel, and it was something that they were to keep part of their law. And it seems that the reasoning for this was that it separated Israel from the nations. But this command of the Sabbath is never repeated for the church in the New Testament. But the penalty for breaking the Sabbath was death. Now, that penalty was likely not enforced in Jesus' day, and the Jews had pretty much removed the death penalty and set fines for everything that they did. But still, the Jews took it very seriously. And they made sure that nobody accidentally broke the Sabbath by doing too much work, by setting these very strict regulations about what could or could not be done. R.T. France commentator says this, quote, The elaboration of details is intended to leave nothing to chance so that no one can inadvertently come anywhere near violation of the law itself. And then he says, some rabbis spoke about this as putting a fence up around the law, end quote. And again, MacArthur said this, he says, quote, because of the thousands of man-made restrictions regarding it, the Sabbath was more tiresome than the six days devoted to one's occupation. It was harder to rest than to earn a living, end quote. And then R.C. Sproul said this about the seriousness of, of the Jews in this, he says, quote, the Jews took Sabbath keeping so seriously that they were willing to suffer death to themselves and to their children rather than violate the Sabbath day. This took place during the assault on Jerusalem by the Roman general Pompey in 63 BC. The Jews refused to fight on the Sabbath as a matter of national honor, end quote. And so Jesus and his disciples, they're going for an afternoon stroll, a Sabbath walk, and it would have been within the 300 or 3,000 foot kind of minimum half mile distance, or the Pharisees would have criticized them for walking too far as well. And the Pharisees are there, are there themselves, and they're observing Jesus and his disciples on the Sabbath, and it seems like they're observing simply to criticize them for what they do. And so notice if you look at back at the text, at that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry and they began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. Notice that word there, they began. It seems as, as soon as they began to do this, the Pharisees criticized them for what they are doing. Now, Jesus is not said to have done this. It's just talking about his disciples. As far as we know, only Jesus' disciples did this, but it seems like, and we'll see at the end, that Jesus has the view that this is not a, at all a breaking of the Sabbath. And so picking and, and eating was lawful, but the Pharisees said it's not lawful to do it, and it's especially not lawful to do it on the Sabbath. Remember, it was lawful to do it on any other day, but the Pharisees, at least the Pharisees believe, this is not lawful on the Sabbath. Now, the law doesn't say that much, 
But the Talmud, which is the Jewish commentary on the law, which was written, really written after Jesus, but likely it existed in some kind of oral form, even in the time of Jesus. The Talmud said this, quote, if a person rolls wheat to remove the husks, it is sifting. If he rubs the head of wheat, it is threshing. If he cleans off the side adherences, it is sifting. If he bruises the ears, it is grinding. If he throws it up in his hand, it is winnowing. End quote. And all of those things, winnowing, sifting, um, threshing, all of those things were considered work. And so the Pharisees took it that this was unlawful on the Sabbath. And that's exactly what the Pharisees were doing, what, exactly what the Talmud said not to do. They were rolling it in their hand. They were picking it. They were eating it. They were then, in the Pharisees' mind, harvesting, threshing, and grinding this wheat. Now, the law did say that you shouldn't harvest or plow on the Sabbath, but the Pharisees took this then as an opportunity to impute guilt on Jesus and his disciples. Now, what Jesus is, is going to do here is he's going to prove to the Pharisees that his disciples are guiltless, that they are innocent. And he's going to show them that their interpretation of the Sabbath is wrong. And he's going to use an example from David's life. David was one of the Pharisees' heroes. David was the ultimate king. And so if he did something and scripture didn't condemn him, then Jesus' disciples could do it as well. And so Jesus is going to use David, an, an example from the Old Testament. And then secondly, Jesus is going to use an example from the Levitical priests. They were allowed to work on the Sabbath. The law made an exception for them. And then third, Jesus is going to appeal to Hosea 6.6. 6, and this is an argument then from prophecy. And so we have testimony then from the former and the latter prophets and the law, which is kind of the Hebrew way of, of thinking about the Old Testament. You've got the former prophets, the latter prophets, the law, and then there would be the writings as well. Or the way that we might think about it, we would say there's an example from Old Testament narrative, there's an example from the law, and there's an example from the prophets. And what we have then on the surface is, is three proofs that Jesus' Jesus's disciples are not breaking the Sabbath. Three proofs that Jesus' disciples are not breaking the Sabbath. And so we have the example from David, the evidence from the law, and then the exclamation of the Lord in verses 7 and 8. But as we look at this and as we get into this, we're going to see that there's actually something deeper going on here. The way that Jesus answers this criticism actually escalates the situation. And he proves his disciples are not breaking the Sabbath by telling the Pharisees that he's above David, that he is above the priesthood or the temple, and that he's even above the Sabbath itself. And so we need to ask then, who could be above these things? Who could be above David and the temple and the Sabbath? And of course, the answer is only the Messiah which is to say the Christ, or another way to say it is, is to say that Jesus proves himself here to be God, God in human flesh. And so Jesus is going to give us evidence that he is God in human flesh. And as Jesus proves his disciples are innocent, then he also proves that he is God. And so we're going to use that as our outline. And so our outline for today is three evidences of Jesus's deity. We're going to see, first of all, that Jesus is greater than David in verses 3 and 4. 
Then we're going to see that Jesus is greater than the priesthood in verses 5 and 6. And then we'll see that Jesus is greater than the Sabbath. He is Lord of the Sabbath in verses 7 and 8. Now, Jesus doesn't necessarily give evidence here as though he's trying to prove something. He really just declares himself to be greater than David, greater than the temple, and Lord of the Sabbath. The evidence for us really came in chapters 8 and 9 where we saw all the miracles that Jesus did. But Jesus here now declares himself to be God. And that's all the evidence that we need. Jesus himself, the one who's done all these miracles that we saw in chapter 8 and 9, he declares himself to be God and we can take him at his word. And if he says that he is God, then he is God. And he really does this in a most remarkable way here. And so the first thing that we see, the first evidence for Jesus' deity is, number one, Jesus is greater than David in verses 3 and 4. Jesus is greater than David. And he turns to the story of David in 1 Samuel 21. And and we're not going to turn there necessarily today. You could read that after if you wanted. But look at verse 3 again. He said to them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry? And those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which it was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests. And so the Pharisees said, your disciples are doing something wrong on the Sabbath. They're doing what's not lawful to do. And Jesus replies with, have you not read? And he says this twice. He says it again in verse 5. Have you not read? Now, of course they had read, but they hadn't really put it together rightly. Now, to ask something like that, to ask the Pharisees in that manner would be an insult to them. And perhaps it also shows surprise, maybe even genuine surprise. The Pharisees should have known better. They should have been able to put all of this together from God's word. And so Jesus is surprised that they haven't put what David did into their understanding of what it means to keep the Sabbath. And so we can ask then, well, what did David do? What did David do on the day that Jesus is talking about? Remember who David is. He's the anointed king of Israel. He was anointed by Samuel to be the king, but Saul Saul was still the king at this time, and Saul was plotting to kill David. David escaped Saul and went to Nob, where the tabernacle was. That's where the kind of the, the pre-temple um, setup was. And the priests were ministering there. There was no temple yet. And so there was a, a, a tabernacle at Nob. And likely the Ark of God was kept there. And the priests ministered there and did their sacrifices there. And David was hungry. And so he went to Ahimelech, the priest. And he lied to Ahimelech, the priest. He lied to Ahimelech, the priest. And he said that the king had sent him on a secret mission. And David asked Ahimelech for bread or, or whatever they had on hand. He says, just, just give me whatever you have. I'm on this secret mission from the king. And Ahimelech said they, don't, they didn't have any food there except the holy bread. And this bread was known as the bread of the presence or the consecrated bread. Yahweh said in Exodus 25 verse 30, You shall set the bread of the presence on the table before me regularly. And so this bread was holy bread to the Lord and it was set out on the table in the tabernacle as a as a, a worship offering to Yahweh. 
And Leviticus 24 continues. This is Leviticus 24. I want to read 5 to 9. It says, You shall take fine flour and bake 12 loaves from it. Two tenths of an ephah um, shall be in each loaf. And you shall set them in two piles, six in a pile, on the table of pure gold before the Lord. And you shall put pure frankincense on each pile, that it may go with the bread as a memorial portion, as a food offering to the Lord. Every Sabbath day, Aaron shall arrange it before the Lord regularly. Notice that every Sabbath day is when Aaron put this before the Lord. And it is from the people, uh, it is from the people of Israel as a covenant forever. And it shall be for Aaron and his sons, and they shall eat it in a holy place, since it is for him a most holy portion out of the Lord's food offering, a perpetual due. And so this bread was only to be eaten by the priests. And new bread was made every Sabbath to replace the old bread. And then the priests, and really only the priests, could eat the old bread in a holy place. But Ahimelech gave this bread to David for him and his men. Now, 1 Samuel doesn't really say anything much more about it than that. David took the bread for him and his men. It was not lawful for him to eat it, but he ate it. And it seems then that both 1 Samuel and Jesus and the Pharisees recognized this incident as a valid exception that it was okay for David to eat this bread. David was allowed by Ahimelech the priest to eat this bread, which was unlawful for him to eat. In this extreme situation, David was given an exception. Now the question is then, why was it acceptable to allow this law to be broken? Why was David allowed to eat this holy bread? And the answers are are typically two. The first one involves that it was regarding who David was. He was the rightful king of Israel. David was the anointed king, and he was rejected by Saul, but rightfully, he was the king. And so because of who David was, some people say he was allowed to eat. The other answer given is is because David was in need of mercy, and that kind of ties in with verse 7 and 8. David was in a difficult situation. He had a legitimate need, and mercy came before sacrifice. And so it was right, and under this view, for Ahimelech to give this unlawful bread to David because David was David and because he was in legitimate need. And so that's kind of the rationale behind this. The rationale is is not, at least we know this much, it's not that Jesus is saying here, well, the law was broken once and so it can be broken again today, right? That's not at all what's going on. Somehow, whatever, whatever the reason is, somehow this is a legitimate exception where, where the, the strict ruling, the strict letter of the law could be set aside, whether it's because of mercy or because of who David is. Now, I'm not sure if it's one or the other or maybe both of those, but for whatever reason, there's a legitimate exception to the law here for David. But here's where it gets kind of neat here. The argument continues in verse 5 with the word or. Okay, so you're with me, you're in in Matthew chapter 12, verse 5, or have you not read in the law? And then he goes into this other argument. And so whatever the point of verses 3 and 4, it kind of continues through verses 5 
and 6. And verse 6 ends with, look at verse 6. Jesus says, I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. Something greater. And so what we have here is a lesser to the greater argument. David broke the law, and it was legitimate for him and those who were with him. And that's the lesser side of the argument, okay? And we can divide this lesser side of the argument into two. The first one is David, and the second one is the law. And so David, when we think about him, he was the rightful king, the anointed one. And David was viewed as really the ideal king of Israel. And David's kingship pointed to the future, to a future king, the son of David, who would be the ultimate ideal king, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we're looking at who David is. He's a king, but notice David is also a sinner. David lied to Ahimelech. But then let's think about the law. Well, the law is really the law. But David and the law are on the lesser side of the argument that Jesus is making. And so hopefully you're seeing this. Hopefully you're with me still. This is the lesser side, David and the law. The king David, although a sinner, was allowed to break the law. But now let's go to the greater side. And on the greater side, we have Jesus and his disciples. And they have not broken the law. In fact, Jesus is perfectly righteous. And so far as we know, Jesus himself hasn't even eaten the grain. And so what the disciples broke, when, when we think about it, they didn't actually break any commandment in the law. They have only broken the rabbinic regulations which were surrounding the law and making a fence around the law. And so if you're seeing this, then what you see is that Jesus is saying something like this. If the actual law was set aside for David and those who were with him, then how much more should these regulations be put aside for the son of David and those who are with me? Jesus is showing them then that he is the Messiah and that he is greater than David. In the words of Psalm 110 verse 1, Jesus is David's Lord and he is the son of David, the ultimate son of David. He is David's son and he's also David's Lord. And if David was allowed to break an actual law, how much more should an exception be made for Jesus' disciples to break what, what, what wasn't even against the law? Jesus, again, is greater than David. And, and that's really saying a lot. And maybe for us, it's not a big deal. Of course, Jesus is greater than David. But for them to understand that Jesus was saying that he was greater than David would have almost been a blasphemous thing. David was the ideal king, if not the, the perfect Israelite for all of the nation to kind of model themselves after. David was the man after God's own heart. And to claim to be da- uh, greater than David is really a lofty claim. And the Pharisees knew this, but but again, the argument doesn't come fully to light until we get to verse 6. And so let's move on, and let's see the second evidence for Jesus' deity. Number two, Jesus is greater than the priesthood in verses 5 and 6. Jesus is greater than the priesthood. And so look at verse 5. Or have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. So on the Sabbath, the priests had to work. And actually, they had to do double duty on the Sabbath. We we already saw that on the Sabbath, that was the day that they had to bake this bread of the presence. And so they were baking bread on that day and exchanging that bread. 
Numbers 28, verse 9 and 10 says this, though. On the Sabbath day, two male lambs, a year old without blemish, and two tenths of an ephah, ephah, uh, I'm, I'm not, I, I used to know how to pronounce ephah flour, but, uh, today I don't know how to do it. So, two tenths of a, of an amount of flour for a grain offering mixed with oil and its drink offering. This is the burnt offering every Sabbath. And then, listen what it says then, besides the regular burnt offering and its drink offering. So there's a special offering on the Sabbath day. The regular offering every day that was the same, it was two male lambs a year old. One was in the morning and one was in the evening. But on the Sabbath, the priests offer two additional lambs plus additional grain and drink offerings. And so the priests are doing double duty on the Sabbath. The priests in the temple, Jesus says, profane the Sabbath or they desecrate the Sabbath. That's what that word means. But they're not guilty of breaking the Sabbath. The law, in fact, told them to offer sacrifices on the Sabbath. They were keeping the law by offering sacrifices on the Sabbath. And so the priests desecrate the Sabbath. They broke the Sabbath. They profaned the Sabbath. But they were innocent. They were guiltless. And that's what that word translated guiltless means. It just means innocent or guiltless. See that word in verse 7. And I think again in verse 5. So Jesus' argument kind of goes something like this. The law at times allowed for the breaking of the law. The priests were exempt from the Sabbath law. And Jesus speaks of the priests in the temple where the temple stands really for the entire sacrificial system. The temple was really the high point of Jewish worship. The temple was where God dwelt between the cherubim and the holy of holies in the inner chamber of the temple. And it would have been hard really to, to overemphasize the importance of the temple for the Jews in Jesus' day. All Jews, and especially the Pharisees, understood the significance of their temple. And so when Jesus says in verse 6, I tell you something greater than the temple is here, he's really making a greater claim again than what we might think. The Jews of Jesus' day would have thought, what could possibly be greater than the temple? And that's exactly the point. What is greater than the temple? What is greater than this temple? Or we could maybe ask it this way, who is greater than the temple? And all its priests and the entire priestly system kind of summed up in this temple. Now Jesus says that something, he says not, not someone, but he says something greater. Why something? What is, what is greater here that Jesus is talking about? And it seems that what Jesus is emphasizing is, is not so much his person, although it involves his person, but his role. In other words, he's speaking about his ministry. Jesus' ministry is greater than the ministry of the temple. And that would have been an utterly shocking thing to hear from those who heard Jesus that day. Now we, again, we already know this. We know that Jesus is greater than the temple. The book of Hebrews argues from the Old Testament that the sacrifices of the temple could not really take away sins. They only pointed forward to Jesus who by dying on the cross as the Lamb of God once for all put an end to sin. And so Jesus as our great high priest, he's the one who made a way for us 
so that we could approach the holy God of the universe, not in a temple on earth, but in his throne in heaven. And so Jesus is saying, my ministry is greater than that ministry. That ministry didn't bring you into God's presence. My ministry does bring you into God's presence because my ministry actually takes away sins. Remember Matthew 121, where we started in this gospel, that he will, he will, um, he will do something, but I can't remember it. Matthew 121. She will bear you a son. You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And so Jesus's ministry actually forgives sins. Jesus's ministry actually makes us righteous in God's sight. And if Jesus's ministry is greater than that of the priests, then Jesus himself must be greater as well. And so these two things really go hand in hand. And so let's make sure we understand the argument that Jesus is making here. Jesus is saying that in regards to the Sabbath, he's saying that if the law allowed the priest to, to break the Sabbath for their ministry, then Jesus' disciples can also break, again, not the law, or the Sabbath, but these man-made regulations that surround the Sabbath. And if the priests were guiltless for their work in the temple, then how much more are Jesus' disciples guiltless when they were not actually even working? But the whole thing really rests, not on the difference between the law and the Talmud, but, but really the, on the greatness of Jesus over the Levitical priesthood. Jesus' ministry is greater than that ministry that happened in the temple. And that ministry has arrived in the person of Jesus Christ. Look again at at our text. Look at verse 6. Jesus says, I tell you something greater than the temple is here. And the idea of that word here, it's, it's present now. Something greater than the temple is here. My ministry is greater and it's here right now. Now, all of this leads to the climax in verses 7 and 8, where Jesus is going to tell the Pharisees without a doubt that he is God in human flesh. And so here comes the final word, and this is number three in our outline. Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath. Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath in verses 7 and 8. And here Jesus makes it clear that his disciples are indeed innocent, and he is indeed the Lord. And once again, he tells the Pharisees that they're really out of touch with the scriptures. Remember, twice he asked, have you not read? And now he says, if you had known, and then he quotes Hosea chapter 6 and verse 6. And the way that Jesus frames this shows that they have not known. And so he says, if you had known, and, and the way he, he works words this in the original shows that they didn't know. If you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice you would not have condemned the guiltless. Now, all the way back in chapter 9 and verse 13 of Matthew, Jesus had given the Pharisees a homework, insi- a homework assignment. Look back at Matthew 9. We'll start in verse 12. But when he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. And that's again Hosea 6.6. 6, For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. 
In Hosea's day, the nation of Israel kept all the sacrificial system, but they really had no love for God. And it was all external. All of their works were just external works. Their hearts were far from God. Remember that verse, I think it's Isaiah 29, maybe verse 4, where, where, where Jesus quotes that again in the New Testament, that they, these people worship me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Hosea and Isaiah really prophesied to Israel at the same time. And so it was all external. It was all um, works of righteousness that, that wasn't really, their hearts didn't really love Yahweh. And God told the nation through Hosea that what he really wanted was mercy. And the Hebrew word there is, is, is translated in our English Bibles often steadfast love. The, the Hebrew word there is chesed. And God wanted, he wanted love. He wanted commitment. He wanted loyalty from his people. But the nation, though they were outwardly obedient in keeping the law and doing the sacrifices, they were inwardly faithless and they had no love or loyalty or obedience towards Yahweh. And so they weren't genuinely faithful. They were faithless. Hosea says, uh, first six, Hosea 6, 6, I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. And so Israel, although they did all of these outward works, they didn't really know God. They didn't love him. They weren't committed to him. And Jesus was using that, again, in, in Matthew 9, 13, to show Israel that they were the same in Jesus' day as they were when Hosea prophesied. They didn't really truly know God. And, of course, they didn't know and recognize his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, either. Now, if the Pharisees would have done their homework in chapter 9, they would have realized that God was more concerned about the heart than he was about their outward obedience. You see, here they were, they were, they were in the presence of the Messiah, and they were complaining about how the Messiah's disciples were breaking the Sabbath, which they didn't even interpret right, and all the while, there they are, standing in front of the Messiah, rejecting God's own Son. And so you see the hypocrisy of Israel at this time. They're, they're complaining about these little eating of the grain, but they're, they themselves are rejecting the Messiah who is standing right in front of them. And people do this really today as well. You know, people, and you can think about it even in our community, people won't come to Jesus. They won't repent and believe. But they complain that, you know, that so-and-so has a beard or that so-and-so mows their lawn on a Sunday. And the, and the whole while, they're rejecting the Lord Jesus Christ. God doesn't want that kind of phony obedience. He wants you to repent and come to know Jesus Christ and, and come to know him through Jesus Christ. And so the sacrifice of external works, even if those works are prescribed in the law, really means nothing if you refuse to come to the Father through the Son. But instead of repenting themselves, the Pharisees condemned the guiltless disciples for doing what the Lord himself was allowing them to do. And then in verse 8, the Lord says really a truly remarkable thing. He says in verse 8, For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Of the Sabbath. The Son of Man, again, is Jesus' favorite way of referring to himself, at least in the book of Matthew it is. And it speaks of his humanity and his deity, but it was obscure enough that, that most people didn't recognize 
recognize it for what it was, and they didn't immediately charge him with blasphemy when he called himself the Son of Man. But Jesus is saying that he is the Lord of the Sabbath. Now that Greek word translated Lord means Lord or Master, but it was also used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament to translate the name Yahweh. And so the Jewish mind, when they heard this word Lord, they would have thought immediately of Yahweh, and especially here. Because who is really Lord of the Sabbath, if you think about it? Who would be Lord of the Sabbath? It would be Yahweh. Yahweh is Lord of the Sabbath. Yahweh initiated the Sabbath. Genesis 2-3 again. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. And throughout the Old Testament, Yahweh calls the Sabbath, my Sabbath. And it's also called a Sabbath to Yahweh. Again, uh, Exodus chapter 20, verse 10, the giving of the law. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. And on it you shall not do any work. And so it's a Sabbath to or for Yahweh your God. And what Jesus is saying then is that he has the prerogative to determine what can and what cannot be done on the Sabbath. And again, that's really something that only God can do. Only God can determine. And so Jesus is saying that he is God. He is God, but he's not the Father. He is God, the Son. He is man, the Son of man, and he is God. He is Lord of the Sabbath. And so those are the three evidences that Jesus is God. He is the Messiah. He is greater than David in verses 3 and 4. Jesus is greater than the priesthood in verses 5 and 6, and he is Lord of the Sabbath in verses 7 and 8. And if we put this together then with the first outline, which, we, which was three arguments that proved that Jesus' disciples didn't break the Sabbath, kind of something neat happens here, so just kind of stick with me here for a few more minutes. Remember we had the example of David and the evidence from the law and the exclamation from the Lord? See, Jesus used David, the king, and the priests, and he used Hosea, the prophet, to make his point. And Jesus said that he was greater than David. He was something greater than David. In other words, Jesus is the greater king. And Jesus said that he was greater than the temple, and so he is a greater priest than the whole Levitical priesthood. And he was greater than Hosea. His prophecy in verse 8 is certainly a greater prophecy than Hosea's. He said that he was Lord of the Sabbath. And we can think of Jesus as prophesying in that moment as he tells us that he is Lord of the Sabbath. He's revealing truth. And so Jesus is a greater prophet. And when we think about the prophet, the priest, and the king, those are the three offices in the Old Testament that required anointing. Remember, the anointed one is what the Messiah means. Jesus is saying that he is the Messiah. He's showing himself to be the ultimate anointed one, the Messiah, or in Greek, the Christ. He is the ultimate prophet. He is the ultimate priest. He is the ultimate king, and he is God in human flesh. He's the creator of the world, and he's the rightful Lord of the world. He is Lord of the Sabbath. And what that means then for us is that Jesus Christ is worthy of our worship because he is the Messiah, the ultimate prophet, priest, and king. He is Lord of lords, king of kings. He's worthy of our lives, our worship, 
our obedience and our praise. And this is important for us as we kind of come to thinking about how to apply this to our lives. The early church gave their lives to defend the deity of Christ. Remember Arius raised up and uh, Arian or Arius the Arian, Arius the Arian um, came along and he said that that Jesus was merely like God. He was homoousius. He was, he was similar to God. He wasn't of the same essence, but he was of a similar essence. And then Athanasius, the church father, and the rest of the church rose up and, and said, no, Jesus is homoousius. He is God himself. He shares the same nature with God. He is God in human flesh. And Athanasius even gave his life and, and was exiled multiple times throughout his life to defend the truth that Jesus Christ was God in human flesh. And so this is really important for us to understand that Jesus is God, God the Son, God in human flesh. And we need to give our lives not only to defend that truth and to preach that truth and proclaim that truth, but also to live it out in our lives by worshiping Jesus Christ with all of our lives and all of our hearts and all of our beings. And so hopefully that's helpful for you as you kind of see these three evidences. Jesus proclaims himself to be God. He is the ultimate prophet, priest, and king. He is worthy of our worship and praise. And we're going to sing now, We Will Glorify. And so let's glorify our Lord Jesus Christ by singing together. Please stand now as we sing. We will glorify.